0: Welcome to this episode of Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast giving you advice, tips, and tools for getting the most out of your research. I'm Laura Grassi, and today I'll be talking to you about fun hobbies for scientists. Research is a snare. Noble aims, curing cancer, reversing the aging process, solving world hunger, and getting a beneficial new pill to market get us out of bed. But these goals are so savagely remote that we have to imagine we are closer than we are, and that today's transferal of clear liquids from one vial to another gets us notably closer. A sustained effort of imagination, motivation and inspiration keeps our heads up and we are more likely to succeed if we keep our ideas, approaches and attitude from stagnating. Plus, random unrelated skills can benefit lab work. But where to search for all this? We don't have the answer but we have some great suggestions. Here are 10 fun hobbies for scientists that can help boost your research and give you much needed downtime. Number one, weightlifting. As you'll be aware, working in a lab is weirdly physical. Ever taken delivery of and installed a new piece of kit? Or ever had to drag a heavy instrument to make room for something new? Centrifuges, fridges, chromatographs, transilluminators, none of them are light. And doing the store's run to get all the month's consumables for your lab doubtless involves hefting boxes upon boxes of stuff. Plus, you're on your feet most days. Weightlifting will make all of these chores more manageable. It's also great at venting frustration and distressing. You could buy a set of cheap free weights and keep them at home or join a gym. Stick with it and you'll acquire two other assets, discipline and commitment. Number two, yoga. Crouching, craning, stooping, straining. The stuff we need in the lab is usually on the floor, on the top shelf, and is too small and difficult to see. What's less ergonomic and back-friendly than loading an SDS page gel? How do your shoulders feel after filling your 96-well plates? On a hard day, I got in from the lab feeling like I'd been in a fight. To look after your joints and posture, why not take up yoga? Being more supple will improve your overall lab fitness, protect you from poor posture and repetitive strain injuries, and make you feel better. It can be a social activity that gets you outside, or you can follow an online class, solo indoors, if that's more your style. And if you do a stress-busting activity like running or weightlifting, as suggested, it's wise to stretch too to stop you from becoming outrageously taught. Number three, knitting, crocheting or cross-stitch. Science is fiddly and good hand-eye coordination and dexterity help avoid gross errors and subtly make your research more reliable. Some good examples of tasks it can help with include handling precious liquid samples, avoiding knocking over and breaking expensive items, but out assays preparing grids for cryo-EM, and preparing histology slides, Knitting, crocheting, and cross-stitching are stress-free, chilled-out ways to improve your dexterity. And the great thing is you have something you can give away at the end. You could even create science-themed makes to adorn your lab or home. You can make a throw or a hat. You can even knit your own dog. If you'd prefer some biology and lab-related crochet patterns, our favourites include a pipette, a eukaryotic cell mini-pillow, and a collection of adorable microbes. Check out the original article for links to all these patterns. Number four, drawing or painting. Painting could be your synesthetic approach to your next experimental design. Who's to say pretty patterns can't expire, actions and abstract relationships are not expressible in colours? Check out the artwork of David Goodsell and Anna Leiber-Lewis and see what you think. There are links to these in the original article. It could also unlock creative ways to present data, and at the very least it stops you from thinking about science for a bit which is when the most helpful ideas seem to pop into your head. Plus, it will help combat perfectionism, which eats unnecessarily into our time, drags us down, and discourages us trying new things. You don't have to stand at an easel and try a hyper-realistic watercolor. You can paint an abstract t-shirt for your next festival, a teapot, or some rocks. Number five, board gaming. Sometimes your data are extremely complex, and you've got to figure out what it means and how it fits together. Sometimes you need to do mental arithmetic, Sometimes people don't have your interests at heart and are out to get one over on you. Do you know what can help with all of these? Board games. You can have a good laugh, test your critical thinking, and get better at doing things quickly and secretly. Don't know where to start? Here are a list of some of our favourites. Do you like birds? Wingspan is a stunning game with beautiful artwork and cute little egg counters. If building cities is more your thing, Carcassonne is a great game. That you can play either in a relaxed fashion or ruthlessly by blocking buildings and taking over cities. Looking for something cooperative, perhaps? Why not work with your mates to defeat a global outbreak in pandemic? Number six, performing arts. Ah, lab talks. We all have to get up and talk in front of a live audience at some stage, and we all hate it. What adds to the problem? The entire scientific approach depends on a sceptical inquisition of new ideas so your audience is usually against you. Honourable mention here to all the legend on their lunch breaks academics who aren't sceptics, but just difficult. Performing arts can help us overcome our fear of speaking to crowds in a gentler, more welcoming setting. You could join an amateur dramatic society, you could join a choir, you could join a band and do an open mic night. All of these are fun ways to help you handle the pressure of speaking to potentially hundreds of hard-nosed scientists. And there's nothing quite like that moment when you realise no one cares that you look a bit of a fool, no matter how you feel. Number seven, reading. Our ideas are like nebula. Precise words help capture and articulate them accurately. Clumsy words erode their meaning. And a significant proportion of a scientist's time is spent conveying ideas. Think of formulating a hypothesis, convincing your supervisor that it's sensible and worth investigating writing the grant application to get the money to investigate it, defending your ideas at interim lab meetings, and publishing your conclusions. All require compelling and clear language, but the audience is different in each example. To be successful, you must tailor your language. How can you do this without a good set of words and imagery to choose from? So read as much as you have the appetite for it. Whether it's fiction, nonfiction, scientific or otherwise, it will make you sharper and more articulate. For a thoughtful take on how to use words to encapsulate our thoughts and bad habits to avoid, read Politics and the English Language, a celebrated essay written by George Orwell. Number 8. Subscribe to a popular science magazine For all the ways our daily lab work fails to relate to anything consequential, we might as well do our work in the vacuum of space. For example, preparing one mole of Tris HCL has as much to do with curing Alzheimer's disease as the heavenly bodies do with one another the disconnects can be jarring and discouraging. But you can get inspired and keep the world-changing humanitarian economic benefits of science in focus by subscribing to a quality magazine like National Geographic or New Scientist. You'll remind yourself that your occupation improves society. You'll read about astounding technology in neighbouring and distant disciplines, which in turn encourages collaboration and a holistic approach to the branches of science that can often seem Cartesian in their isolation. And you don't have to read them cover to cover to enjoy them. I'm a fan of the infographics published in Nat Geo that make stupendously large amounts of data comprehensible. Number eight, writing, blogging, or poetry. At some stage, you've got to commit your results to writing. It doesn't have to be the Iliad, but it has to be halfway decent. Seeing all the red ink when you get interim feedback can leave you feeling despondent too. Better to get some practice in while the stakes are low, right? You could write for a blog. Write for Bytezo's bio, just get in touch. Start keeping a journal or have a go at writing poetry. Keep it simple and keep it for you if you want, and you'll slowly improve at making your point and writing for different audiences. Number 10, gardening. The cleverest material scientist I know is an avid gardener with an allotment. It makes sense, he researches clays and eggshells. Gardening can teach you patience, make you better at dealing with frustration, for example, when your tomatoes get blight and die. And reduce stress levels when your tomatoes flourish. You'll set long-term goals and deal with things beyond your control. What's not to like? It's not for everyone. You need a garden for starters. But if you work at a university, there are probably community gardens and greenhouses you can volunteer at. So be sure to check. Don't believe serious scientists have time for hobbies? Not so. Carrie Mullis, the inventor of PCR, was an avid surfer. And the agronomist, Nobel Peace Prize winner and GMO pioneer, Norman Borlaug was on his college wrestling team at the University of Minnesota. The belief that you must chain yourself to the lab and the only actions conducted inside it qualify as meaningful is misguided and probably a form of abuse. There's an assortment of fun hobbies for scientists that can boost your research through inspiration, creativity, fitness and articulacy. They are not to everyone's taste. Remember, no one's forcing you to do anything. Nor must you go into things thinking, this is going to make me a better scientist. It's probably better not to do so, so you engage with everything sincerely and at its own level. The benefits might come off way in the future. So that's it for fun hobbies for scientists. Check out the episode description for links to related articles and resources. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get more help and advice from mentors at your benchside. Flowstars is back with season four. The podcast from Bettman Coulter and Bite Size Bio and hosted by me, Peter O'Toole from the University of York. I'll bring you closer to the big names and the rising stars of flow cytometry and get to know the leaders and those rising stars outside of the lab and more personally. Grad school was a struggle for me. Mostly because I wasn't sure what I was doing. I have, I don't know, 150 different spices, 130 cookbooks, So many kitchen gadgets. My kitchen is like a lab. What we do, we do it out of love for what we do. And that's a very different motivation. And I don't know that that's something you can teach. Almost this and more in season four of Flow Stars. Really hope you enjoy them. on the go but still seeking valuable insights to advance your research well look no further than listen in the podcast from bite Size bio that offers the benefits of webinars in a portable format with webinars featuring leading researchers and commercial specialists discussing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 and microscopy With Listen In, you can tap into their expertise and drive your research project forward efficiently and productively, no matter where you are. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Listen In in your podcast app to subscribe.